Welcome back to Teaching Tuesdays. This is the second episode in our Civil War mini unit. Um, we are going through American literature and we are on the third unit. So, of course, as I said, it is the um, Civil War unit that we're going over. So, this is today's, in today's episode, we're going to talk about a short story that I usually do in my American literature classes. And it's called An Occurrence at Owl Creek, and it's by a man named Ambrose Bierce. Um, so today we're going to talk about a little bit of information about the author, um, talk about some before questions just to get you thinking. We're going to actually read the, I'm going to read the short story to you, and then I'll leave you with a few things to think about and a possible exploration to think about and do. But that last thing is completely optional for those of you who are out there listening. Um, But yeah, I usually always keep this lesson structured the same way. So hang on to your seats as we delve into the life of Ambrose Bierce and look at one of his short stories called An Occurrence at Owl Creek. Alright, so we're, let's delve into the life of Ambrose Bierce. So he was, of course, an author during the Civil War time period. And he is most famous for his short story that we're looking at today, An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Now, Bierce was also known for his political pieces about the wrongdoings in the United States, thus leading to a lot of ill feelings towards him as a person and as a writer. Yet throughout his whole writing career, Bierce's literary works were filled with images of the Civil War and or the supernatural. Some people would compare his works to that of Edgar Allan Poe, who was another romantic um, author. By 1913, Bierce wrote a letter to a good friend and then he vanished. Without a trace shortly after that. Kind of a little bit like Edgar Allan Poe did, but they found his body, Poe's body. They, to my knowledge, did not find Bierce's body though. Today, people continue to read his short stories as non fiction pieces. Of course, he was born in 1842, and as I said, he disappeared sometime after. Um, December 26th in 1913. A lot of people nicknamed him Bitter Beers because he was a little bitter about things. Um, As I said, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge was his most famous work. He was the 10th of 13 kids. He was an avid agnostic he had a wife named Mary Ellen Day. They ended up being divorced. and But together they had three kids. Day, Lee, and Helen. And that's about all I have on Man Ambrose Beers. You are more, as I always say, more than welcome to do a little research on the man yourself. Which I always highly recommend. But for today's intents and purposes, and keeping the episode short, 
that's all we're going to talk about for background of Ambrose Pierce. Alright, so before we actually start reading the story, I have two questions I want to ask you guys to just get you thinking about what's going on in the story. So, imagine yourself facing a frightening life-or-death situation involving, let's say, an automobile accident or some sort of natural disaster. What thoughts do you think might flash through your mind during that time? Just think about it. And then, based on this title of the story that we're going to read, which is An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, the time period, which is... Let me in um, during the Civil War, so between 1861 and 1865. And then the little information I gave you about the author. What do you think the story is going to be about? So keep those two things in mind as I read. An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Pierce. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down to the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross-timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the tie supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle at the posi- in the position known as support, which is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot, planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into the forest for a hundred yards, then curving was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzles of a muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and the fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backwards against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Expect the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man, moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing his work of subordinates, but not making a sign. 
Death is a dignitary when who when he comes announced to, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those who's most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of difference. The man who was engaged to, in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitted frock coat. He wore a mustache and a pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provisions for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind the officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements <clears throat> left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The man upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. and a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, and the plank would tilt, and the condemned man would go down between two ties. The arrangement condemned itself to his judgment. It was simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water touched to gold by the early sun. The brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream. The fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. Now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion-like, the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death kell. He weighed each new stroke with impatience, and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays become, became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They heard his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If 
I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and swing vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods, and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from the captain nodding nodded to the sergeant, and the sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner and, like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original succession and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending in the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the large, larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for the distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come as it comes in to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South. No adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier and who, in good faith and without too much qualification, assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictate that is all that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on the a rustic bench near the entrance of his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. The Yanks are repairing the railroad, said the man, and are getting ready for another advance. They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandment was issued has issued an order which is posted everywhere declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. I saw the order myself. How far is it to Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? And only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel on this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and when burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this date, he was wakened, ages later, it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, 
followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, pugnant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to be with an inconceivably rapid periodically. periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating, heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but the feeling of fullness, of congestion. Those sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and was feeling torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud of which he was now merely the fiery heat without material substance. He swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation, like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible sad- suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. Power of thought was then restored. He knew that the rope had broken and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. <laughs> to die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light, but now distant. How inaccessible! He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising towards the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought. That is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in it. His wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent, what human strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor. Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upwards, the hands dimly seen on each side in the glowing light. He watched them with a new interest, as first one, then the other, pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought. He shouted those words at his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pain that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish. His disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick, downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively. With the supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great drought of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. 
He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant bodied flies, the gray spiders stretched in their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors, prismatic colors in the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass. The humming of the gnats that dance above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonflies' wings, the strokes of the water spiders' legs, like oars which had lifted their boats. All these made audible music. A fish slid beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointed at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, and their forms gigantic. Suddenly, he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, splattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle to the shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half around. He was again looking at the forest at the, uh, on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear high voice and a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirant, rated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men. But... With what accurately measured interval fell these, those cruel words. Company, attention, shoulder arms, ready, aim, fire. Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. And yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again towards the surface, met shining bits of metal singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands and fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectively. The haunted man, hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was an energe as energetic as his arms and legs. 
He thought with the rapidity of lightning, the officer, he reasoned, the officer will think that Marionette's error a second time. It is easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He was probably already given the command to fire at will. Oh, God help me, I can't dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound. The minuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinding him, strangling him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches of the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use the charge of grape. I must keep my eyes upon the gun. The smoke will prize me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort and men were all mingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only. Circular, horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex, and he was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. A sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, and emeralds. He could think of nothing more beautiful, which it did not represent. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, and hailed the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through their spaces among the trunks, and the wind made their branches the music of alien harps. He had not wished to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot till retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grape shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodsman rod. Road. He had not known that he lived so wild in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall, he was fatigued, foot sore, and famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a, in a point like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through the, this rift in the wood, great shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. 
He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret of a line significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, which among, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, found it horribly swollen. He knew it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst, and he relived its fever by thrusting it forward from behind its teeth to the cold air. How softly the tough turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the rope beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while, asleep while walking. For now, he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he had left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide, wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the step, she stands waiting with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he's about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow to the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. All right, to end today's um, episode, I wanted to give you guys an option to explore some ideas you have about this story. So, in my um, American Lit classes, whenever I teach it, I have my students write a three-paragraph essay over a theme based on the story. So, some a theme that I usually give these kids is reality versus illusion, or, you know, the false or misleading impression of reality. Um, they have to, they can choose that one, or they can choose foreshadowing flashbacks, which is something that's in that story. And then another, the third theme that I let them choose from is hope. So they choose, I have my students choose one of those themes, and then they have to find two quotes from the story that relates to that theme and write a few, that a three paragraph essay that combines the two talk about, yeah they have to talk about the historical connection to the story they have to include the evidence the two quotes from the story to support their theme that sort of stuff so my question for you guys as you listen and as you think about the story, what would you choose to be the theme of the story? Would it be a reality versus illusion that falls from a misleading impression of reality? Would that be a good theme? Would foreshadowing flashback be a good theme for the story? Or would hope be a good theme for the story? Possibly you think all three Possibly you think two of the three. Whatever your 
thoughts, ideas are, I I suggest you write them down and get everything written out and try to explain it well because being able to articulate your thoughts well and learning how to do that is always a good skill to have regardless of what um, career you have or you choose to have, whatever you do in life. Being able to articulate your thoughts clearly and to have everyone say, you know, you're right, you made a good argument. I can't argue with it. That will make you pretty popular. But that's how I'm going to end today. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to the story. And uh, you guys have a good day and I will see you guys on Friday.